Atención, atención, atención. Your boy is running his mouth on camera this week at AI4 2021. It's a free conference all about exploring artificial intelligence across the industry. You can register via LinkedIn. It's running over three days digitally from August the 17th through the 19th. And it's actually their first time featuring game developments, uses of AI, and your boy is bravely coming out of the gates. My talk is scheduled to air Thursday, August the 19th, 4.30 Eastern, 1.30 Pacific, and it's entitled, How Games Outsmart Players, The Evolution of Game AI. I'll link to the sign-up in the show notes. It's meant to be high-level and accessible for anyone and not geared towards technical pros, so come through, support, and share with your circle. If you know someone who has a story to tell about game development, and has at least one game credit under their belt, let them know that I'd love to invite them to come on to the show as a guest. Go over to our website, outofplayarea.com, and click on the Come on the Show button, and feel free to read the guest FAQ if you want to know what it takes to come on. Please make sure to get clearance from your studio or employer's HR or PR team. And while you're on the website, check out our new merch on Spring. I'd love to see people repping the show in the wild one day when things are bajo control. With all that, hit my music. On episode 15 of the Game Devs podcast, Out of Play Area, we sit down with Sylvain Dubrovsky, a veteran who's been doing this since 1999 and is currently a product designer over at Oculus, working on VR games and experiences. He was nominated to fall out by Jeff Junior back in episode seven. We sit down and talk about what incubation chambers bring and can offer studios. His journey breaking in as a programmer in Frisco at Shaba, jumping over to design at 3DO, working on the mythical layer for Factor 5, moving to Harmonix in Cambridge, and then coming to Seattle to work at PopCap as a former fellow electronic artist and more. Coming to us from the VR mecca that is Seattle, please welcome Sylvain Dubrovsky. Let's start the show. Bienvenido, bienvenue, welcome to the Out of Play Area podcast, a show by video game devs for game devs, where the guests open up one-on-one -on -one about their journey, their experiences, their views, and their ideas. No ads, no bullshit. Join us as we venture far out of the play area with your host, seasoned game designer, John Diaz. How are you liking Valheim? I haven't gotten into it yet, and it seems like I got to get in soon. It's fantastic. I've only played it myself and with my friend, and I've hosted a server on AWS now. It's totally worth it. So he can go in to the same world and I can. It's really worth playing. I think it's a great game. What do they got going in there? Like, what's the loop? Is it kind of got like build your defense, build your ship? The loop is very much like every time you use something, you're upgrading it. So it's like that kind of Skyrim-y kind of like oh, old school, actually. Morrowind kind of, you use it, you upgrade your, your stats. Okay. And then every time you get new things, you're kind of trying to build up your base so that you can build more things. So it's this constant loop of, I want to get the ax so I can cut down that type of tree so I could build this type of building so I could get this boat, so I can go to this place, so I can get more stuff. So it's like okay. you're upgrading and you're getting more stuff so you can get more stuff. It's that same kind yeah. of loop. Yeah. Is there any PVP in there or PVE? Mm -hmm. 
Nice. It's all PVE. It's, there's no PVP, although you could get screwed if you go to someone else's server. They, they could probably steal your stuff. Ooh, okay. Or not let you get good things. So, yeah, definitely play with people you trust. That's how I do all my online gaming, man. It's, I don't I don't go in there with no matchmaking intentions. I'm like, hey, when are you free? We're free. Let's do it. So I, I, yeah. that's a good idea. I had a thought about spinning up something on the cloud so that they can just jump in anytime, even when I'm not there. Yeah, I, I had it on an extra computer I had, and then that stopped working the other day. So I was like, fuck it. Let's just put it up. Just do it. It's like dollars a day, if that. It's like, huh. it's $20 a month for, for this okay. amount. So if you split it with two people, it's not. Oh yeah. Compared to all the other subscriptions that are running out there in the wild. Yeah. That's a good one. Awesome, man. Let's get to it, Massey. Where you are today, what's your role? What are you up to that you can talk about? I work at Facebook Reality Labs, which is, you know, encompasses Oculus and all the VR and AR stuff. I'm a game designer, also known as a product designer in the, the lingo over there. So yeah, that's what I'm doing. I think people will note the latest public things I've shipped are um, First Steps, which is the thing that plays when you put on the Quest or the Quest 2, and it kind of shows you what VR is all about and teaches you the controls. And uh, BOGO, which is a free kind of pet simulator kind of thing that shipped with the Quest 1. The second the Quest was announced, right, there was a lot of excitement over, yes, finally, untethered, right? I'm free. I can do whatever, be whatever. How was it internally? I'm curious. I can't say the numbers. I don't even know the numbers, but they're, it's doing really well. I think people are really really happy with it. I think it exceeded my expectations. I, it was really cool to see people like I brought it home and my mom was able to get through first steps and just seeing that level of like person who doesn't know how to play games or hold a controller, just be able to get in. There's something very natural about VR when it's done well, where it's just like life, right? You know how to use your mm -hmm. hands, you know how to walk around. It's a place to be that is similar to what you are, but more magical. You make a good point there that it's the closest thing to a one-to-one -one mapping outside of the uh, rhythm games of which we're definitely going to get into because you, yeah. you have a lot of experience with those. And, and it's funny though, I see a trend that we might kind of stumble across as to all the projects that have attracted you. But yeah, in this space, it's really been, I guess, when the Wii first came out, right? That was the, the first like footsteps into this direction and, and VR is totally I think the biggest thing, the biggest appeal can be just drawing in people that are not really gamers. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you could even say it with mobile, right? Like you see all the cats that play like, like on an <laughs> iPad, right? Or like that lizard. Uh, I love that you brought that up, man. Right. You, you got the, that enough. If you get the right input devices and the right naturalness to it. Mm -hmm. I even saw like a, you know, there's that picture of the cow. I don't know if that's real, but the cow wearing a VR headset to pretend he's on a better farm or something. <laughs> living, living a good life. Uh, there's a monkey yeah, I saw that was put in it. Um, but yeah, I think it's even, I mean, you could, if you want to really take it back, you can go even further than VR. There's just, I think for me, when I think of my favorite game experiences and what I'm trying to do with games a lot, it's that thing in your head, which is you want to experience something. You want to live like you're something else. You want to like, I want to actually be Superman or I want to be a rock star or whatever. It's a simulation of that experience is what you imagine in your head and what comes out of that. So mm -hmm. it, it, with VR, it's very natural for that. But you know, when, when the Batman game came out, the, the Arkham Asylum, which was the first great Batman game, I played a bunch before that. The Gotham VR? Oh, no, no. Just talking about straight up 2D. 
Oh, okay. You know, yeah. 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 The, Arkham, the first Arkham game, the gray one, like that came out, you were like, I was like, wow, I'm Batman, right? Mm-hmm. This is like everything you expect from Batman. If you're a Batman fan. And I think that's what a great game is. Just get, fulfills that, that thing in your head where you're just like, I want to be that thing, you know, and GTA, you want to be that crazy criminal that drives around, you know, and, and VR just does it even more. I think. Absolutely. I like that. Yeah. I, I think you, you kind of wrapped up interactive experiences in a great nutshell, right? It's like, why do we do these things? It's because we can't do it in real life, generally speaking. That's it. <laughs> right. It allows us to be things that we've always kind of read about, watched in movies, fantasized about, dreamt about even, things like that. You know what blows my mind, and this is kind of off track, but like when you see super famous, really talented football players playing Madden, and the same thing for basketball players playing NBA, and you're like, they're still getting that, right? And there's like, yeah. who do you like to play? They don't play themselves. They play other famous football players and basketball players. It's really interesting to me. I'd like to delve into that more someday. That is interesting psychology for sure. I would totally do that if I was in the shoes again, right? Living the fantasy of like, I want to make sure that I am as rated in the game as I feel I am in real life, right? right? I think you get that a lot. You get a lot of athletes opening themselves right away, seeing their rating and then like, complaining back to the company or the publisher or developer like no man i'm faster than that i'm better than that <laughs> right. right it's interesting with the whole pandemic the pro bowl this year was all virtual right so mm-hmm. all the athletes played madden <laughs> over the bragging rights which you know say what you want i don't have any skin really in either direction but as i know they don't go as hard physically in the pro bowl so i guess virtually it allows them to kind of go 100 percent. so I, I found them more interesting Oh, you actually watched it? I didn't actually, I didn't take the time to watch it. I didn't even know when it was on. I haven't played Madden in a long time too. So I don't know if they, do they play crazy, like throwing it long bombs every time or do they play for real where they actually punt? They're like practically playing a simulation, really. Like if you Mm -hmm. were to let the computer play, that's how they they operate generally. They got, they got that thing figured out, man. I always, I could never hold a candle to like real players the way they know the game. You know, I'm just, I'm playing it to that point, right? Hail Mary's giving it to the best guy running, you know, and never punting, <laughs> right? <laughs> Knowing the statistics. Has there been any difference with the opportunity to be untethered versus tethered, right? Has that opened up a realm of exploration or anything that you've worked on that you weren't able to work on because whatever limitations or just trends, right? Like, hey, where, where is it going? Where can it go? Well, when we made first steps in BOGO, they were both with the idea that you don't have a wire behind your head. How can we take advantage of that? So with BOGO, we also wanted to make sure that it would work with different size play spaces. So uh, I don't know if people know this, if they try it, but like if you played in a giant space, the, the amount of playroom you have, everything's moved out dynamically. Oh, I didn't know. That. And then as you get closer and closer and closer in, it like shrinks everything until it gets to a point where we can't shrink it anymore and have BOGO fit within those confines. And then we give you teleport, which is not the greatest way to experience that product. And so we wanted players to really like walk from one end to the other and be able to do it physically in their environment, do stuff that like that encouraging people to turn around is just not as fun with a wire. Mm-hmm. We really, really took advantage of this in first steps. It's challenging with first steps because everyone had to use it. So I had to work with people that were in wheelchairs or standing and did it, couldn't move oh, that's awesome. or were sitting on their couch. But we also want it to be better if you had like a little bit bigger of a play space. So with first steps. The biggest one is obviously the dancing robot, you know, like we would never with a wire encourage you to spin around, you know, (laughs) 
180 or 360, right? Like that you're, you could get tangled up. Just dancing itself is like moving your legs up and down. You're going to trip off that wire. So that was our big chance to, to do that. And, you know, if you're in stationary, you only plug in two things, but I have it so that when you have a bigger space, you're encouraged to go to the corners of the room and plug those wires in. You'll be surprised, you know, with VR, especially first timers, they're scared to move their feet. They're scared to walk around. They don't trust the environment. So getting them to move their feet and trust that they could go to different spots within the guardian is a lot of careful work to make them mm. trust you. There's definitely something to that, right? I still got my PSVR, then I got a Vive. And even with the Vive, right, I'm in a very constrained space. You can see I got to be very mindful of like when I swing my arms out. Yeah. yeah, I see. But I generally, for the most part, I try to stay seated. Even when I turn around, right? my body's still facing the screen or the camera or whatnot. And that's an awesome dynamic as designers now getting players to get up, move around, inviting them. Hey, it's okay. Don't be worried. Right. Like, but make sure the area is clear. That's awesome that you guys dynamically adapt or adjust depending on the, the hardware, right. And what's available. Yeah. It's something that most people aren't really taking the effort to do. I think it would be nice if the tools made it a little bit easier. I think one thing that I think is one of the features is as VR gets bigger, there'll be different types of sessions. You know, a lot of stuff is very active and it's really great. And it's really test your ability to play something great like Beat Saber or move around mm-hmm. an environment or a space. But I think that there's room for experiences where people are sitting and relaxing or they're doing a job and they're being intense about one particular activity over and over, or they're being active or they're just lying down and being creative and playful. I think that's the future. Like if we think of, about how people are going to be using a device once it gets broader and the audience gets bigger and the types of it doesn't have this friction to putting on the headset, like, oh, like what are experiences that you can get in and get out for 10 minutes? Or Mm -hmm. what are experiences that you want to play for two hours? And what do you play when you're sad? Or what do you play when you have a lot of energy or all that? I think that's stuff that I'll be thinking about. That's awesome. I really like the idea of being able to lay down and still be in these worlds of still be engaging. I want more games that I can play laying down for sure. Right. Especially as we get older. Oh yeah, man. I'm still trying to build this into my daily routine is the idea of naps. And I think I'd be much more keen to do that if I can just throw on a VR headset and hey, I'm resting my, my body, but my mind is still going at it. Yeah. You mentioned tools and tooling. Are there any standard set of tools that people use to develop VR games or it's all proprietary stuff? I think the standards are Unity and Unreal right now. I've used both for VR, so I think they're both really competent. That's where I would go. Isn't it crazy how open and accessible it is now to make a game? Something that I learned from your experience was the road you had to take to get in. Curious to get your take on what it's like now versus what it was like back then and trying to break in. What it's like now is amazing compared to what what it is back then. I mean, the internet just in general allows you to learn everything so much easier and more effectively. I think like when I was playing guitar as a kid, like I picked up magazines in the store and I was like, what? Okay. And there's numbers here. I guess I could try and figure this out. And it was like a long process and maybe you could make a friend to teach you some things that you can get, but that's it. You know, I remember being a kid and I missed an episode of Twin Peaks. I missed the episode of Twin Peaks where you found out who killed Laura Palmer. And there was no way for me to see that until like 10 years later when the videotapes came out or whatever it was. There was just no way to get information back then. 
So okay, that's a long way of saying like, now it's, yeah, there's no excuse. There is ways for you to make games at every single experience level. And that was not the case back then. So I, I got in the game industry in 99. I wanted to make games ever since I was a kid, you know, and this is, I think separates my experience from a lot of people's experience in life, which is they're trying to figure out what they want to do as a job or as a vocation. For me, I was always interested in comics and video games and nerdy stuff like that. And then I found role-playing games and music became something later. So this is like the 80s time period is my like growing up period. You know, I did see all Star Wars movies in the theater just to... to okay, that, that. that helps put, put, it, put it all into perspective. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but I don't remember the first one because I was really young. But the, the thing that happened when I, got, when I was three was I got an Atari 2600 as a present, which was a very, very nice present. And I just remember thinking like, this is the most fun I could have. Like, it just blew my mind away. And I'm, I'm privileged and lucky enough that I've had uh, computers too. So I had an Apple IIc after that. And I've had systems all throughout. I used to save my money as a kid. I used to get an allowance and I would save for months just to buy those old N Nintendo flip portable systems. It was it like the Game & Watch? Yeah, the Game & Watch series. Mm -hmm. I had that exact one. I had like 10 of those and those things were so expensive. And I just saved my money for so long just to get a, a piece of that. I just, all my money went towards video games and then later comics and role-playing games. And I would go to the magazine racks and read the magazines. Like they would kick me out. because EGMs and so Game Pros and things like this. Electronic Gaming Monthly was my jam. And then... So as a kid, you don't realize this, but the game industry collapsed in, what was it, 84? The magazines just disappeared from the, from the magazine racks. And I didn't know what happened as a kid. And I had an Atari 2600 at the time. And then I was like, where did all the games go? And all of a sudden there was a bargain bin and all the games were shitty and they were like a dollar. And I was like, what happened? The magazines are gone. Atari 2600, 2600 is here. Coleco like had great graphics, but I didn't have one and I really wanted one. Mm -hmm. And... Then I just was like, okay, I guess games are not going to be a big thing. Video games, you know, specifically. And then Nintendo happened and I was like, oh, that yes. just changed everything. Game changer. But for me, I wanted to make games. There was no way really to, for me to learn how to make games. I took a basic class at a community college and I, I think I was better than a lot of the adults that were trying to learn programming. It was just came kind of natural to me, but I didn't know how to make video games. So when I graduated high school. I was still like, my goal was to make video games. I was in Florida and I didn't know what to do to do that. It was the first year that DigiPen was out, but I didn't even know what DigiPen was. Mm. If I did, I probably would have tried to apply. So I went to college and became a programmer. Like traditional computer science? Yeah, I took a computer science degree. I shouldn't say I became a programmer. I was just taking classes and trying to do stuff in Unix. And none of it involved graphics though. So it wasn't game-like. Mm. The closest I got was doing a tic-tac-toe kind of AI with, you know, you draw like X's and O's on the screen. And even after I graduated that, I was like, still, I don't know how games are made. So I was really kind of looking for it. And I, I saw like these books in the store, but like, you know, books were like 60 bucks and I was in yeah, college. Man. I couldn't afford to get one of those. There's no internet to tell you how to do this stuff. I knew OpenGL was a thing, but yeah, I was just a poor college guy, like really wanting to get into games. And so I had no way. So that kind of leads into how I like struggled. It was a, it was a real big struggle, you know, for me, I had graduated college and then I went and moved back home with my parents. And essentially I, I set my resume to like every game company I heard of. And that, you know, through all these like 
Next Generation Magazine or all these other things. I like found out what all the games were. I looked in the back of all my games. I had it. This was N64 era. Yeah. Um, and they had an address of where the game was manufactured or whatnot. Yeah. Yeah. And I would just like send my resume out to everybody and like no one was, no one was paying attention and no one cared. I didn't know anybody who worked on video games. It just seemed like a, a pipe dream for me. I, I even applied to some places that weren't games just to get experience interviewing. I applied at NASA and they actually interviewed me, believe it or oh, not. How was that, man? Is that intense? It was crazy. It was crazy. They offered me the job. They should not have offered me the job. I'm not a good <laughs> programmer like that. And you, you turned it down? Yeah, it was in um, Cape Canaveral or whatever, Florida. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like the main launching point, right? Yeah, they were using this crazy programming language. And I was like, everything inside me was just like, first of all, why would you hire me for this? Second of all, it's not a lot of money. Third of all, I want to work in games. And fourth of all, I don't want to work on any kind of software that has people's lives in danger. <laughs> it's not for me. I want to do stuff that enriches people's lives and doesn't possibly hurt them by accident with something I did wrong. Yeah, I could definitely sympathize with that aspect, but you know, still NASA on the resume definitely has to stand out. It was weird. It's still weird to me because I don't know. I know much better programmers than me that they would probably laugh if they. But back then, right? Like back then you probably one of one of a handful in that area, I guess. I guess. I don't know. Florida's weird in a lot of ways, but that's another (laughs) podcast. (laughs) Another topic for another day for sure. All right. So I'm living at home. I feel like a loser. I really want to get into video games. You kind of have this tunnel vision. You're like, hey, I want to go to this thing. Nothing else yeah. matters. Yep. Yeah. And the first place I sent my um, information to that got back to me was this place called Iguana Studios in Austin. Yeah. Yeah. They had made That's a bunch like- of good stuff like Turok and they made like, you know, South Park and they, they made other stuff. They had a football one, but they were like, okay, well, you ha- everybody that applies to us has to send us something so here's a little test we give people and it was like make a defender clone in vga in two weeks or one week or whatever it was it was a short time period so i like went to the bookstore and actually spent money on there was two books there one was abrash's black book the famous book and the other one was this other book some game programming book and that one had a disc and that disc had like fonts and like text in it so i was like that one actually has stuff i could use so i don't have to figure out how to do text on the screen and then i just I programmed it. I just barely slept. I, I worked every day for like 14 hours learning how to boot my computer VGA style graphics, which is just essentially putting, um, colors in the screen in, into place in memory. You're programming pixel by pixel, essentially, right? Like pixels go here and move this way and are this color and are on or off. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Essentially figuring out how to blit things and make sure it doesn't get it off out of memory. So like it would just crash the whole computer. Like all the basic 2D stuff that was around for PCs at the time on Pentium. And then I made a Defender clone. I still have it somewhere. And it had sound and it had text. I made these little creatures that would randomly move around the screen. And I was learning a lot. It was really fun. And I was exhausted and I sent it. And then they were like, come, come to Austin. And they, you know, I flew on a, flew on a plane, got there, had some barbecue and then went in and then just proceeded to not get the job in the most painful way possible (laughs) that must have felt pretty good up until the decision right like getting thrown out seeing the inside of a studio getting to meet actual developers being interviewed talking about the thing that you've been passionate about your whole life up to this point you would think i remember going into the office and they like they show me around a little bit first and then i go in front of the guy and he gives me this test and he's 
asking me these questions that I can't answer, you know, and oh, he would ask me, you know, a how, programmer one? yeah. And I was like, you know, I don't, I, as I told him, I was like, I don't know how to do graphics. And he was like, well, let's, let's figure out how to draw a line. And I remember thinking, well, in that book, there's a, a line drawing algorithm from this guy, my Bressenham, something like that. But I didn't want to say that I was too nervous. And like, I don't know, nowadays I would just be like, yeah, I just look up information like that. But he, he wanted me to figure it out from first principles. So I was like, I don't know how to do this stuff. You're asking me how to do. And I could see that like I was bombing it. I could feel it. And then he showed me around the studio anyways and got lunch with me. But I was like, there's nothing more depressing than having a lunch or being shown a studio that you know you didn't get the job. Fair. I, I guess I'm, I'm trying to try to put myself in those shoes. And yeah, it's like they keep working with you to be like, all right, you don't know this, but how would we get there? How will we figure out based on what you do know? And, and it not coming out of you, right? For whatever reason, right? Like nerves, just kind of get, getting into a, a dark space. But yeah, yeah. It's like, you're so close. You're so close. It was, yeah, it was like right there. And I was like, you're, you're on like a, a date with the most beautiful girl and you're just blowing it. And it's just going really bad. But you got the date. I guess you could say like you got the yeah. date, but like, and next time you date, you might be less of a weirdo, but it's a good analogy. <laughs> I went back to my hotel room that night and cried. Let it out. Just let yeah. it out. Then I went back home and wrote down every question he asked me and nice. just made sure that I wouldn't fail those questions again, at least. You turned it into a learning experience. That's huge, right? Like every failure yeah. is only really a failure if you don't learn from it. But that was the darkest period for me because there was a period of months there where I couldn't get another interview. I bombed that one. And I thought, well, like the things that were going through my head were like, everybody that says, if you just try hard, it's a lie. I was just like, the dream is dead. It's a lie. No one gets chances. Like you, you want something, you try for it so hard and you just don't get it. And I was really, really depressed. And I was starting, I was starting to think like, what do I do with life if I don't do this one thing? This is the only target that you've had and the only goal. It was mm -hmm. like nothing else existed. Yeah. I think if. If people like uh, want to take one thing away from anything I say today, I think the most important thing to take away is, you know, that old saying, like 90% of the game is just showing up. It's just, if you keep trying at something, even in your darkest time, there's so many other people that don't keep trying. Mm. There's so many other people to just give up. You just don't give up, you know? Just keep doing it. Unless you're like, like trying to learn in the worst way possible, you will learn things. You will get better. You will get experience and people will, will recognize that you're, that you're trying for something as long as you're not being a dick about it. As long as you're not like hurting other people. Don't be a dick. Don't be a dick. <laughs> and, and yeah, to your point back then you could make the excuse to be like, yo, I have no one to turn to. I have no one to explain to me how to do the thing. I, you know, I don't, there's no classes, there's no books, there's no internet. There's no videos, there's no how-to guides, there's no software. But today, you know, going back is, it's very different, right? You yeah, have the tools, you have the software. There's so many discords and forums and channels for everything out there. And the YouTube, YouTube. Oh you my can, God, I you love can, YouTube for this. Uh, like I, I even tell people sometimes they're like, hey, you know, do I need to go to college? And, it, and really my first knee jerk reaction is like, you can save yourself the money and try and see how far that gets you, right? But for a lot of other people, college is still solid, right? Like for the people that aren't as self-disciplined, you know, or, or driven, right? right? Like they, they kind of give you the curriculum, right? And kind of guide you through learning the things you need to learn. Yeah. But you're right that there's so many different ways now. And like, it depends on the person. 
But I generally, I give the same advice to, to people generally that want to get into games, especially if they want to be a game designer, mm. which is like the same thing you're saying. It's just like, there's no reason to not do it now. If you're not doing it now, it's only, there's nothing holding you back. You can learn anything you want out there. And you're not showing the thing that people want in the game industry, which is people that are going out and doing it. That brings me to the next step, right? When you actually broke in, when you yeah. told me the story, you kind of left my jaw on the floor and I don't want to ruin the surprise, <laughs> but in the interest of your lengthy career and the time we have today, you were able to break in at Blam in the Bay Area. And the way I understand it, you found this on Craigslist of all places, right? Craigslist <laughs> was a viable hiring spot back then. Yeah. You know, these days it seems like jobs are just floating around Twitter, discords, and LinkedIn. But when you got there, they kind of just threw you in the deep end and then were like, hey, here's a PlayStation dev kit. Figure out how it works. That's crazy <laughs> to me. That's crazy to me. You have to break that down for me. How the heck did you survive that? Well, yeah. So I had moved to San Francisco. Long story short, I got a job, which is a whole nother thing. But I was sleeping on the couch. And basically the first day, they, they're like, here's a PC, you know, keyboard and all that. And here's a like, they handed me this PCI card. This was 99. And they said, all right, your first task is just to get this PlayStation dev kit going. And I was like, oh, okay. They're, I was like, cool. They're like, usually it takes people, you know, up to three days, you know? I was like, well, what if I don't get it done? What if I don't get it done in that time? They're like, we'll probably just fire you. And I was like, not sure if they were joking. I, I would have taken that as a joke. I'm like, ha ha, funny. Oh man, I was, I was a little nervous about it. And especially since they didn't like, there's no manual, there's no guide and there's no internet, right? It existed in 99, but it's not going to tell you how to install a PlayStation 1 dev kit. And I'm sure like whoever has, whoever is working at any studio today can, can easily fall on the sword of, oh, documentation sucks, right? Like, but <laughs> <laughs> back then it's, it's 10 times worse if you could imagine that. Yeah, for sure. So here, here's another way place where privilege comes in, right? I'm lucky enough to know and love computers, but part of that comes from the fact that, you know, for some period of my life, I didn't have a lot of stuff, but there was a period of my life where I did have computers and, you know, that's a privilege that not all people have. And I was really into them and I, and I liked knowing how they work. So I understood about PCI slots. I understood about IRQs. These are things that maybe people don't care about or know about today. Anybody that's ripped apart a computer or installed a graphics card can appreciate this for sure. Yeah, yeah, for sure. But back then, remember when you wanted to play a really good game, you had to like reboot your computer with a special kind of like bootloaded sequence yep. just to be able to get it to run. And it would take like hours or days sometimes to be able to run some of the hottest games. And, and, and right? little master slave pins, bro. I'm like, all the wires look fine. Why isn't it doing the thing? And you know, you need to take that little pin out the way. Right. And put yeah. it in the other side. Like, oh, how, how would I have known this shit? How would yeah. you have known that? I mean, mm -hmm. so I got in there and I was like, this, this thing is just not working. This PlayStation dev kit card and this PC, it's just not working. So I was just like, spent a day looking at it and just trying to figure it out. And then I didn't want to ask people at work because it was like a rite of passage. And I don't, I don't think this way now, but I always felt like I would be putting upon someone if I was asking for help. So when the only way I figured it out was when they went home one night. I opened up everybody else's computers and looked inside and I was like, I saw a pattern there, which was like, okay, the PCI card tends to be in this slot or this slot and I have it in this slot. Maybe that's a problem. And then I started to look at their BIOSes, which is really dumb. But then I, I realized that, oh, if the PlayStation one card 
is shared. The computer is trying to share it with the sound card. And if it was mm. shared on the same IRQ, it wouldn't work. That's when I figured it out. Okay. So uh, then I moved my PCI cards one by one and then rebooted it and saw what IRQ it was putting on until it worked. And then I finally got it up and working. Dude, how does that feel, man? That was like your first game industry test and you passed yeah. that stuff. It felt pretty good. At that point, like I was sleeping on the couch, but I was like, I had a job in the game industry. I had done something worthwhile. I wasn't Silicon Valley. I got my computer. Yeah. Right. Yeah, it was right in, right in San Francisco, the city that I still love, but it was, you know, really crazy at the time. Yeah, it felt good. You know, I was, I was really, <laughs> I was really happy. I, I like this because I, I recall my early days in the industry and, and I empathize with you 100% because it was the same thing, right? Like I was put in a little corner in front of a computer and like, you know, here's Unreal 3, here's a, you know, demo build, here's Confluence pages, go through it, build some things. Every so often someone would come over and we would chat. But it never occurred to me, right, to like get up, go over to the dev floor, right? To me, it was like, oh man, it's like DEFCON 5, security clearance needed. You know, they'll let me know when I'm ready, right? But the quicker you are to get up out of your seat and go communicate and talk and learn and, and siphon information, right? And show your curiosity, the faster you can get up and running. And, and it's funny how back then, right, we're just super kind of like, okay, it's all up to us and then we got to prove ourselves. And then they'll like accept us or something. That attitude, that thinking that you have to know the answers or that you mm -hmm. have to, that you have to intuit it yourself is not the right attitude. And I didn't know that. And I think, you know, some of the older studios I was at kind of actually had the, that wrong attitude. When I was actually at 3DO, I didn't actually know who the programmers were on one of the projects I was on. They sat in a totally different part of the building and we were not allowed to talk to them. <laughs> that is the worst way to make games. Yeah. So when you broke in at 3DO, that was as a designer. Yeah, I had switched at Blam. I had um, been a junior programmer. And when I decided six months after getting that job to leave, I had switched to, to deciding like, hey, maybe I could be a designer because I didn't know what that was before. And I, and I said, I want to look at design and programming jobs for my next job. And you found the recruiter or the recruiter contacted you or you contacted the recruiter. How did that work? Yeah, when I was decided I was unhappy at Blam, I had looked, looked out and like, found a recruiter. I don't remember how if they contacted me or I contacted them. I didn't know how to apply to jobs or anything, but they just knew a bunch of jobs. So I just started interviewing everywhere. And um, I was like, just find me junior programming jobs or designer jobs. You know, this is something about our industry that I think we, we know now that we're in it. But once you get your first job, as long as you don't do something terrible, it's much, much easier from then mm -hmm. on, right? It's like you do all this work and all this time to get in and then you could take a breath. Once you're in, you're in, right? Unless you do, like, unless you get a scarlet letter somehow yeah. that outcasts you. And yeah. even then you can still float by a few times and maybe write your wrongs, but. Yeah, there's some people, there's some people that'll float for a while, maybe forever, but they're not going to work at the greatest game companies, you know, you'd hope. Mm -hmm. For the most part, they're just going to be at these little shops <laughs> that aren't that yeah. great. I've definitely maybe big shops that aren't that great too. There's a lot of different strategies of like getting lost into big corporations and, and yeah, not, right. not being able to impact too greatly. What if that so, was this whole podcast, which is just talking about how to like, how to just get, get lots of money and just float by. <laughs> maybe in another few console generations, maybe that'll be the topic of conversation, right? Like, oh man, <laughs> dude, this next generation is just like operating on a different level, man. And I can't keep up, you know, how, that's how what they always say, up? you know, when the PlayStation two came out, I remember the artists telling the programmers, they're like, we're not going to need you anymore. That's never the case. <laughs> never going to be like that. There's always going to be a battle for the resources. 
people are always going to want to make it look as good as possible. It's mm-hmm. always going to be relative. Everybody needs each other. Kumbaya. It's a great point. We need each other. We can't do it ourselves. I mean, shout out to all the, the smaller teams and the indie teams. And again, on the strength of the tools and the shared information, you can say, oh yeah, this game was built by one or two people who put a whole bunch of time in there, but that's not necessarily 100% true, right? Because they're building it on the strength of all the games that have come before then that have kind of solved some of these design paradigms and the information is out there, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, the, all the people that made the engines, they got all props to all that. You know, like the person that Valheim's made by five people, primarily one for most of its time. If you go back, if you're really interested in it, like he has videos on YouTube, you could look at his Reddit comments. It's all beautiful. And like, he doesn't know what it's about to happen to him and his company. It's almost going backwards in time, right? The first original games were made by like Richard Garriott, one person, you know, like, yep. did all the art and the sound and, and, and the programming. And nowadays it's like, you can almost get that again. Like Valheim's has at this point in time sold 7 million copies or something like that. Same team of five, mostly started at by a team of one, right? Like, but there's these engines that if you know how to, how to use them, they have great tools and you just work within those tool sets and then pick a, you know, you pick a topic or you pick a a game style that a theme, like, you know, this guy obviously knew a lot about previous games, survival games, he was a big Bethesda fan, you know, and there is a, there's a big blue ocean of people that are wanting to, to explore and to craft and to be with other people and to have these downtime moments that feel like really homey and like have these, you know, exciting over the top, unexpected action events. So like he picked the right run, he picked something. Mm -hmm. There's a good amount of luck in there. Right. But also Mm -hmm. making what, you know, it's interesting when you find someone who has come from engineering and makes the shift to design, I think that that makes a particular kind of designer for a lot of different reasons, right? But I'm curious what your perspective is on that, right? Like being a designer with a programming background, what are the types of things you had to do at 3DO and even some of the companies after that, right? Like Shop of Factify. I think when I first got in the industry as, as a designer, I didn't know what a designer did or was. Like the first designer I worked with at, at Blam, we were working on a roller jam game and he was just like, the fighting wasn't working. And I was like, okay, how do you, what do you want me to do to make it like the characters be closer together and yeah. actually punches to hit? And he was like, I don't know, just give me a bunch of knobs to tweak. And I was like, well, what do you want those knobs to control? Like what, what should they do? And he's like, I don't know, just give me a bunch of knobs. And I was like, man, if I had someone else programming this, I would at least know what kind of knobs I wanted. So I thought that maybe that would give me an advantage. Like, I think always in the back of my head, if I'm asking for something and I'm not doing it myself, I'm thinking, well, well, how would I do it? You know, like I've even gone as far as writing pseudo code for programmers I'm working with. Like, here's kind of how I would lay it out because you have to think about what data you want. Like, how do you want to be able to tune it, you know, when you're thinking about systems? And then, you know, there's different types of design, right? There's system design, which is that stuff. There's level design, which is Mm -hmm. a totally different skill. You know, I started to learn that back then I learned 2d level design using height map editors in the PlayStation one days, and then 3d level design with 3d studio max and Maya. I don't think being a programmer really helped me there. I think in the early part of my career, I didn't have a design tutor or I didn't have like, there weren't books that were really out there to teach me how to do this. There weren't YouTube videos that there are now, like. There's so many resources for learning about how like say Naughty Dog does their awesome levels or whatever. Mm -hmm. What I would do is just research a lot. Like I would try to learn as much as I could from other games. I worked on a extreme sports skiing game. Not a great one. Which one? (laughs) Johnny Mosley, Mad Tricks at 3DO. 
Yeah. Claim it proudly. <laughs> that was my first 3D level design. And before I, I worked on it, I was like, well, I don't know anything about this. So I played a lot of SSX and oh, not cool just playing it like people play it. Like when you're really trying to break down design, like I would had my notepad in my hand and I played all the levels. I would write down what, what are the timings? How fast am I going past things? How often are the jumps? How big are they? What are the, the layouts and the setups that I really enjoyed and liked? What are they doing to change it up each level to make it more difficult? That was my main thing. Like if, if I don't have anyone to teach me, mm -hmm. I got to teach myself. So when I later worked on other things like AI design, I would break down, I would take Smash Brothers and I would watch them fight and I would time, you know, how long until they attack each other? Do they attack each other with the same move every time? Is it deterministic or is it random? I would just try to break things down. I got a Game Shark and I put it in there. Oh, I put game the genie characters. and game shark. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And you could change all the stuff about the game and you could see how the characters work. So like I would put them in different levels that they're not supposed to be in. And to try to evaluate like how much the level has actually set data and how much they are in real time trying to figure out like, Hey, can I jump to that or not? Oh, you could learn so much from existing games by really breaking them down. And that's what I was doing that whole, that whole middle part of my career or the early part of my career was just trying to do as many different types of design as possible and just getting experience directly by doing it. That's fantastic, Sylvain, because so often a lot of design interviews with people you've never worked with are very much that, right? Like if they're not well-structured with a script or you have some type of test that you can kind of speak off of, it's generally these are the conversations that the people working there want to have with you, right? They, they will ask you, hey, tell me about a game you like or didn't like, right? And essentially they want to see if you can speak to it at that level of breaking it down and, and, and breaking down systems and making guesses at some of the decisions they made or the caveats they had to make to pull something together. So that's awesome, right? Like for people that are out there listening and be like, how can I be a game designer? Hey, I play all the games. I know everything, right? It's like, well, get a pen and paper out, get your phone out and, and try to break it down, try to see behind the code. You also mentioned that there's a lot of resources online that you like to pull from. Are there any off the top of your head that you check out frequently, whether it's a blog, a video series or anything like that. Yeah, there's a ton. I mean, there's so much, like I'm always watching them. I think the GDC puts out a new video, like every day, practically uh, I watch every single one of those, you know, there's like Udini specific ones, you know, or unreal specific ones. Game makers toolkit is a nice one. He does some I good do stuff. like game makers toolkit. Yeah. yeah. Right. He doesn't even come from games, right? Like he doesn't even make games. So analysis of games is a very good tool. You know, there's books out there that are really good. You know, Jesse Shell's book, I think is a good primer for how teams work together and what designers do. A book so of like lenses. Book of lenses. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So there's, there's more stuff like that today. I think if people really want to delve a little bit into it, I think that first thing of just understanding systems and what, what the level designer and the system mm -hmm. designer are trying to do. But then when you, we're trying to go like one level above that, like we're talking about like, how do we want players to feel? You could look up stuff like. MDA, which is, you know, the mechanics, dynamics, aesthetics thing that's out there. That's definitely a good read. And the game designers workshop at GDC, there's a book about it, I think too. I think both of those kind of go into some of the earliest educational kind of attempts to teach a higher type of game design, which is we want players to feel a certain way. And, and like, when I talk about like Batman, when I was talking about that example, what makes Batman a great game is different than what makes Madden a great game, which is different than what makes GTA a great game or Mario. In each of those things, there's no one encompassing game design, like it works for everything, right? Like a Madden mm -hmm. player wants football to be as close as possible to the real thing, right? 
And that's not always fun in the, in, the, in the same way that Mario is fun, right? When you're Batman, you're like, what makes Batman what he is, you know? And how does that trickle through the game systems? And how does the player interact with those to make you feel like Batman? When you're thinking of the great games and the great designers and the great teams, they're thinking like that. I want to ask you, because I think it was a big learning point, and I think there's a lot of insight potential there to unpack, is this game you worked on for the PS3 called Layer by Factor <laughs> 5. Sure. I'd love to know what you learned from that experience. I think Lair is a good example of how having more stuff doesn't make a game better necessarily. We were late in shipping that game. When it came out, it didn't rate very well. So like, I'm not super proud of having worked so hard on that game. Like I crunched for like over a year, six May. days a week. Yeah. Like 10 hour days and then driving to Marin County or past Marin County from San Francisco Bay area. It was like a lot of my life that I didn't want to spend on a game that wasn't received that well, you know, and as I was making it, I was like, this is not the greatest game. And we talk about what do people want from Lair? What do you imagine when you're like riding a dragon, right? It didn't give me what I imagined, right? Like I imagined it's like this intricate beast that's kind of hard to control. And like, you know, it's really kind of intense and, but then there's downtime and you could like feed them and you can grow your relationship with them and all that. And I don't know. It wasn't that it was basically Michael Bay. It's just constant intensity of like things happening all over the screen. And that kind of, it just always intense, always kind of dramatic kind of story and element really didn't sit with players, not to mention the controls and the FV and all the problems we have with stuff. One example of like why it was delayed and why it was so late and why we crunched so much is there's like a vision. And it wasn't explained to us how all these things kind of came together to make a great product. One day, you know, the creative director came and said, we have to add horses to this game. At the end of development? We were already late. No, it was like in the late middle, I think. And we Jeez. were already late. We had already been delayed. And it's not an easy thing to add horses to a height map. And like, and they're so small, right? You don't barely see them. And there's these giant armies of 10,000 fighting for whatever reason. And... We couldn't argue against it, but you're just like, why do we need horses? I want them. They have, the game has to have horses. And you're just like, but why, why when yeah. we're this late, how does it make the game better? Yeah. It just, and I learned that like, there's no arguing against it. We're just going to have, have to have horses. And I'm in this really uncomfortable conversation with the AI designer where he was really upset at me for like a half hour. And I was like, it's not my decision. I don't want them either, but we have to have horses. So how can we do it? And he's just like, I just had to eat it and I had to take it. And I understood because I didn't want them either. There's nothing I could do. I was just one of the designers in the team. So I worked with him to figure out what is the way we can get horses in the game? What's the cheapest way to make them animate and look correct and work? And, you know, they had to be like as part of the army and they had to like move around. They had to be eaten by the dragon or picked up or whatever. The, all the Jeez. things that you had to make this horse work. Please tell me those were systems that existed for other creatures already no there was no other creatures like a God. horse in the game that's Jeez. what made it so hard it wasn't like <laughs> the dragon was like a horse no there was nothing there was God. that was the first four-legged creature in the game there wasn't Ouch. like cows i wanted cows actually like in the beginning of the game i was like it'd be nice to have to land and feed the dragon sometimes and you get some downtime or whatever no my cow idea was gone <sighs> we need the horses for the giant armies <laughs> Yeah, so then that's awesome, man, because it's like, yeah, a lot of times designers on the team, we just unfortunately are message carriers sometimes, right? Like we mm -hmm. get the creative vision, 
and we try to fight for it with logical conversation and, and, and facts. Sometimes we lose that battle and we got to bring it back to the team and eat it. Like you said, right? You got to be the bearer of terrible news. That's so unfortunate, man. When you have something, you know, it's not going to make a significant change to the end game or make it better, but it's going to add a shit ton of work. That's so hard, man. You know, that's why I've always said that like a solid producer is worth their weight in gold, right? Or somebody who can be that checks and balances to be like, hey, new feature means this to the schedule, but does it mean this to the quality, right? Or, or anybody, right? Just having that voice of reason or having a director who is willing to listen to the team, man. I understand the pain <laughs> that resulted from that type of structure. But on the good side, that propelled you and motivated you to make a big transition to the East Coast, as I understand it. Yeah. After Factor 5, I'd worked at a few places, you know, Shabo, 3DO, part of Activision, right? And then Factor 5 was the last place I worked in the Bay Area. I really wanted to work on good games. I was like, okay, if I'm going to kill myself crunching all the time, I don't want it to be on things that people don't like or don't play. So I sent my resume out to the three companies. And the first job offer I got was from Harmonix in Boston. And, you know, they had made Rock Band already. You know, that was one of the, and still is one of the, my favorite games of all time. And I went out there and I worked on Rock Band too. That was the first thing I, I worked on. And, you know, my goal was to like work on games that people like that and, and understand like, what is the process that makes this? And who are the people that are doing it? Like, I just want to know. I want to work on good games and like get a feel for it. I love that at this point in your career, you finally got to that point, right? You paid your dues. Yeah. And now you're like, all right, I'm only going to work on good games. I want to make good games. I want to be around people that know how to get these things done. And you get the privilege and the right to be picky now and, and selectively send out your application or apply to different teams. And then you get your pick of the litter and you're like, up oh, harmonics. They know how to make good games. Because at this point, right, it's rock band, but... The first Guitar Hero, and then before that, a lot of other... They did like Frequency and Amplitude. Yes, yes. And, and yeah. Oh. yeah. Oh, okay, those are the ones. They're like right at the tip of my tongue. Awesome. Thank, yeah. you, for pull Thank you for pulling those out. Because yeah, yeah, they were powerful rhythm games off of a controller that just kept you sucked in, right? Because you're doing all this action on the beat. And, and then that naturally transcends now to instruments and things like this. Yeah. It was, uh, you know, it was a good company and they had finally broken through and they had done the thing that you should do, which is like grow and experience and don't just go in a hundred different directions at once and, you know, go crazy. They had kept working on their core competency in a way that resulted in a product that was just amazing. You know, and I got there and I was just super proud. I worked on Rock Band 2, Rock Band 3, Beatles Rock Band, Rock Band PSP and Fantasia and then stuff that some stuff that didn't chip, you know, especially in the Connect realm. Fantasia was with the Connect, right? You were like a maestro and they tracked yeah, yeah. you. Yeah. That was the last thing I worked on there. Dude, I remember, I could see how that kind of lends itself into VR eventually. A little bit, yeah. But I remember checking that out at some expo at GDC or E3 and being like, you know, of course, anytime there's new technology that doesn't have you in the typical peripheral space of controllers, you're just like, oh yeah, I feel so great. And I, and I'm, I feel like I'm a composer or like Mickey. Yeah, this is wonderful. I can't wait to play it, right? It's back to the whole, they created this feeling of me being the composer behind that creation, right? And they like totally sold it, right? Yeah. Well, that's certainly what people expect when they think of Fantasia, that's one of the things, right? Is that scene, right? Is mm -hmm. the, your composer, Mickey, right? Hell so, yeah. 
if it, if it didn't have Composer Mickey, it would be kind of a failure. What was different about harmonics? Was it just external facing? Was like, okay, they make good games. I'm going to learn how to make good games with them. Or was it actually real when you got there? What was the difference? There's a few differences. And like, I catalog these in my brain because I was like a detective really coming into that company. There's a few differences. So let's talk about one. One was, I noticed that they didn't ship everything that they could. Like they didn't put everything into the game that was possible. Like earlier than other companies I'd worked at, they would cut stuff. Even if it was fun, they would cut it. And I just was, just blew my brain, but I was like, why would you cut something if it's cool and fun? And a lot of times it was because, oh, this doesn't fit the game. Mm-hmm. And that's something that like less experienced companies don't necessarily do. Like one example that I didn't even see, but they had told me about was like, they had a whole feature, which was, it was like soloing with the guitars and it was in the original rock band or maybe Guitar Hero and they prototyped it and it wasn't quite right for the game and it couldn't quite get it done in time, but it worked. People tried it and it was pretty good. Most companies I'd been at before would just ship pretty good. If you had done all the effort to make it and put it in there, you're shipping it. It's going in. Yeah. It's going in you're the box. Coming in. There's no reduction of anything. I'm honest, didn't do that, right? They thought about things in terms of the whole player experience, in terms of adding things could make things worse, right? That's important. I would say that's one of the big ones. Another one is play tests. All companies I'd worked at before had the most minimal amount of other people playing your product. Harmonix didn't have that. Like everybody in the company was in bands together. Like you'd split up in the whole company and randomly put them into bands that played once a week. And then, you know, for all the products I worked on, I just sat in rooms and watched brand new people play the product for the first time constantly. And we had a playtest department who would aggregate those results and tell you like how they were doing, you know, there's no way we couldn't have made interesting things like adding real keyboards or real guitars to rock band like we did without actually sitting there and watching someone that has never played guitar before, put it in their hands and watching them use the software you made. That's the only way to do it for real. From then on, I've never made a product without play testing it. Never again will I make something without watching people use it. And that's the only way to validate and make good designs for me, at least. I would say one more thing is they really respected design in mm. terms of the fact that art was there to service the design. In other places I've been at, it's like they were separated or there was the reverse. But if the art looked pretty, but it made you less able to hit a gem with your guitar or whatever, because you couldn't read it, that wasn't going to fly, right? You know, the frame rate had to be good enough. So it's, everything's going and you could feel like it in groove. Everything was in service to the core design of the game. And I think that's super important for the type of games I like, at least. I would say those are the major core crux of what I learned at Harmonix. Insane takeaway points for anybody. It doesn't matter who you are, what the scale is of something you're building, right? It's play tests, the power of polishing something by scoping down and cutting. Even if you think the feature is fun, right? There's some people that have been doing this for a while that can tell like, hey, it's 70% there, but that remaining 30% is going to require X amount of time and work and testing and polishing and bug fixing, right? That's going to take away from the core gameplay that's already 90% there. And we know what it's going to take to get it to that 10%. That's super powerful. This is something else I learned that I'll never forget. I worked with this programmer, Bryn, and we were working in this prototype group and we were trying to add new features to Rock Band, figure out like what new things could go in. And one of the guys had an idea for this kind of mode where you speak to the audience and that like, if you said something that would be really cool, the audience would go crazy. You know, it would respond basically to what you're saying, kind of like, you know, you're in Spinal Tap or whatever. When we were thinking about how to build it, we were thinking about like natural language translation and like, what are all the technical details? Like, how would you implement it? And I was like, 
thinking through that, like, how would I program this myself? You know, it was like, man, it's going to take us weeks or maybe if not months to even try this. Bryn heard all that. And he was like, no, I'm not going to do all that work. That's stupid. I'm going to do this. And then he came into the room like two days later and we tested out what he had. And like Greg, whose idea it was, he was like doing it in front of the device. And what Bryn was doing behind the scenes was he had a keyboard and he would just push a button based on what he said to make the audience react in the way that was most appropriate. No natural language stuff, none of the big time work. And Greg was able to try that feature and he tried it. And like, he was like, oh, I hate this. I don't like this at all. And we got that information very, very quickly, right? And we got it within days and we didn't have to spend weeks or months building out the right way to do this. Mm. The lesson there is very, very important, I think, which is like, don't languish in your brain about this thing that you want to do that is like super expensive to try. What is the fastest way to do it? Hack, cheat, do whatever you can to experience it. Because until you experience it, you'll never know if that idea is good or not. So like, that's always in, in my head when I hear people talking about these really out there, like possibilities. There's a really good GDC talk called Bears versus Art. The guy who does this talk, he watched all his talks. He made um, Fruit Ninja. He's the designer of Fruit Ninja. Oh, okay. Okay. All his talks are great. But Bears versus Art just goes into like how quickly they test things out in a live audience. That method should be like in our psyches, dug into our brains that like hack and do it as fast as possible. Get something on the screen, cheat as much as you can to get the experience to people or yourself to try it as fast as possible. Don't spend all this time on something that could be terrible. Shout out to Half Brick. I had to look that up. I remember I was like, yeah. where do I know? Yeah, they, they put out some fun things. A Jetpack yeah. Joyride. He made that too. Same designer. That's a great one prototype, take all the shortcuts, even fake it, I don't know, paper design or get some props, right? Like don't limit yourself exactly. to having to build it in simulation, right? Use flash, use previs, use whatever to test your assumptions and see if the thing you think will result or if it will create the feeling. So then, you know, like, okay, let's go ahead and pull the trigger and invest the actual time and resources to make this a real thing versus not. I like that, right? Because generally there's a few different types of people out there, but there's the people that like instantly think of the way to build something the right way versus in prototype world where it's like, hey, let's not go down that tunnel of we got to build this the right way. And it's got to be memory optimized and scale for multiplayer and, and all this thing. Like, no, no, no. Let's just test our assumptions with some crazy, simple prototype boxes and primitive shapes and whatever right. there's a million ways to do it and there's a million examples out there you know like you can watch that zelda talk you can see how they mm -hmm. build it in 2d right for the latest zelda i love that yep so good right you have to do it as fast as possible because that's the most efficient way to do anything yeah yeah before throwing the army at it yeah absolutely so you finally see what it takes to make a good game and you're in cambridge what part of massachusetts is Armand? yeah i lived on somerville it's, it was in cambridge i walked all the time through the snow to get there and something was calling you back out to the West Coast, or you felt it was time to make a change after shipping so many different rock bands and things like this? Yeah, like Boston area, really didn't have a ton of game companies. I didn't really want to work at Irrational. So I, when I decided, okay, I think it's time to go somewhere else, I was like, what do I want to work on? I grew in love with the idea that I was working on games that a lot of people played and a lot of different types of people loved and enjoyed. So. I just really kind of wanted to keep going, but I also wanted to learn more. Mobile and free-to-play games were really becoming a thing, and I was really excited about learning something that was that foreign to me. Like, I didn't quite understand how they worked, how they were successful, and I thought, like, wow, if I worked on mobile games, it would be smaller teams again, and I'd have more impact. It just seemed like a cool place to go, so 
after that period, I just sent my resume to one place, just to Popcat. I was like, man, if it doesn't even work out there, Seattle's a great place to be for games. Like I could just finish my career out there. And Popcat just made some great stuff. Like I loved Peggle. I was playing a ton of Peggle. It's my favorite Popcat game, but I really loved PVZ also. And Bejeweled was great. So I was like, I could learn something here, you know? And I think Popcap could make the transition into free to play. They're already really good at mobile stuff. That would be great. And then I sent my information out and then it was taking a little while and I was like, what's going on? And then they got bought by EA. That's why you weren't hearing anything. They were in the middle of like some big changes. Can I tell you, they flew me out there twice. Oh, wow. Have you ever heard of that? A company flying you twice? Like the second time I flew over there, I was like, you better give me this job because this is ridiculous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What was that about? Like, it was like flight. they were on the fence about some things. They wanted you to clarify. Oh, you just had to meet their next layer of combatants or something. Like, what was that about? Let's just say with the era of COVID, this is all changing, right? Like, people are going to be able to interview and are already interviewing, not in person. That's how I got into EA. My, my really? interview was all virtual. Remote, just, yeah. Yeah, remote, just how we're doing the talking. And to be fair, it's much easier. There's no more home court advantage, right? Like everybody's on right. even ground and just much more natural-ish. I feel like I could do better on a, on one of these, I think. Yeah, absolutely. So what I heard later was that the second interview was just me interview with different teams to see what team I would go on. Like okay. They had already decided, they didn't tell me this, but they had already decided they were going to hire me. They just wanted to figure out what the right fit was. Because they didn't kind of plan it out right with the first day, which is kind of classic pop cap move. It was frustrating, but whatever. <laughs> I, I did it. This is part of being a go-getter, right? This is part of being there and showing up, you know. Ah, uh, back to that. Yeah. yeah. And I had to burn four vacation days to do it at, at a company I was already at and like trying not to be suspicious. You know, when you get a new job, you're like, <laughs> it's just awkward. Yeah. Cause if you, especially if you're flying from the East coast, right? You already lose a day. Yeah. I flew on like Thursdays. So like I would, I would take a half day on a Thursday, leave the, leave the company early. We're walking out with like a weird bag that I've never carried before, <laughs> right to the airport. Super it's always suspect. so awkward. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> well, it was also, okay. Then you would interview Friday and then, you know, Saturday, I guess you would travel back and then Sunday. I walked around Seattle Saturday and traveled back on Sunday. I was really tired on Monday. Yeah. Yeah. The jet lag of going fast forward into the future. That's cool, man. So, so how was the vibe of the, the studio, the city? Was it everything you thought it was going to be and made your decision easy or what? Yeah. I mean, I really liked Seattle just walking around. It was like more like San Francisco. Seattle's like a colder, cheaper San Francisco, right? Anything is a cheaper San Francisco. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. As you know, it's not like the biggest city. It's like a, but it's a good mid-sized city, you know, and I'm happy with that. And PopCap was a crazy environment, man. It, even after being bought by EA, it's just a fun place to work. And it still had some of that spirit, right? And I kind of absorbed a little bit of that. I, I got some of that PopCap magic for the first year I was there, at least. The first thing I worked on was a web game, a casino game, you know, and then I worked as my first lead designer on Peggle 2. But for both those experiences, I'd worked with people that had worked on some classic products, you know, some stuff that I really liked at PopCap. They treated their employees really well. I felt they were respected really well. And like that there was a quality of life there that was really good compared to places I'd worked at previously. They really, really cared about their player base. And it was a really good experience. How was it making the transition from console development into mobile development? Yeah, that was, that was interesting. Well, first I worked on a web game so that it was a free to play game. When I think mobile, I think free to play as much as I think mobile, right? At that point when I was there, there was kind of a battle going on at PopCap because a lot of people didn't like free to play games, but it was pretty obvious that casual games, which was PopCap's forte, was on mobile. 
and mobile was all free to play or it's becoming all free to play. Like that's where all the money was because it's, you can't beat it, right? It's free. So I worked on the casino game. What was it called? It was called Lucky Jim Casino. I don't actually even know if, if it's still around. I'd be curious if you type that into the web browser, if it was still there. Because it was sold it. later to another company. Oh. It was a slots game. And like, I have no idea what people like about slots. So when I get in those situations, it's kind of similar to what I told you about before. Like I get involved with people that really like slots. Luckily, John Vici and other people that work there really like slots. So they, they just sat with me and I watched them play and they told me how they worked. We worked with a slot company, had programmers and people that made slot games, you know, and I could talk another half hour about why slot games work and what, what's a good slot game versus not a good one. And I kind of learned that stuff by watching them, by watching, by playing it myself and feeling it. And from their knowledge being just downloaded into my brain and I got a, like a heads up and, you know, I designed some slot games and some systems on that. So like there was a, a Bejeweled one, we did like Monopoly mm. and we did a Battleship. I'm sure you don't want to go too much into what makes a good slot game or like, it's the same process, right? It's like learning about why people play these free games. Like why do people spend money on free slots? You know, they're not going to get it out. Right. (laughs) That question itself has come up. uh, One of the first episodes here, Doug, he worked on slot games and the target demographic being middle-aged women and being how they, how they drive that economy and being perplexed at like, why are you putting money into this game? that's not going to give you the money back. Yeah. And one of the things I think about being a designer or being at least a good designer is to empathize. And this is like the last latter part of this, especially this pop cap part of my career, which is like, I learned how to test and I learned how to do all this other stuff at harmonics. And then this last part, I learned empathy for people that are not playing games that I like. I learned how to play them or like respect them or gather the information like empathy. I learned how, why people feel the way they do, even if I don't feel that way about a game. And that's what I learned about slots and I learned about other things. So you asked me about mobile. The first time I worked on mobile was after Peggle 2. We'd ship Peggle 2 was a launch title. I was lead designer on that. And after that experience, I really wanted to work on mobile and I wanted to work on smaller teams and I wanted to work in Unity. I wanted to work more directly on things. Is the right word then casual games? Is that, is that the right word then for what, what, what you were doing at PopCat as opposed to just mobile? Surely. Casual. Surely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. PopCat was a casual game company. I think yep. that was the crux. You know, you play it on the plane, right? They would yeah. go wherever casual games went and they were going to mobile. And by going to mobile, they were going free to play. And the hardest transition of all those was not the mobile part. It was the free to play part. Because it's a completely different design paradigm. Completely different. I think for freemium and for VR and for any of these big shifts, you could take the best designer of a specific game type in the world, a, you know, God of War designer, or the best level designer in Half-Life or whatever. And they might have trouble if they don't have the empathy. You just got to throw away everything you know that works because when it's that big a shift, the audience, what their expectations are is different. So when I went into that mobile free-to-play prototyping, I had to learn by like, I went in and watched every GDC talk. There's brilliant people out there. I went to GDC itself and like talked with people. You know, I went online and had conversations and I also looked at the top 50 because, you know, the goal from EA was like, make a top 25 mobile product. And I was like, okay, one of the top 50 products, they're all free to play. Half of them are casino games or maybe a quarter of them. So I played all these games and I'm like going through them and I'm like, why do people like some of these? You know, it was Clash of Clans was out there then. With these top games, like it's very different than with free to play games. 
playing Clash of Clans, playing these other games that were in the top 50, I really kind of had the realization like, well, there's a couple casual ones, but they're really trending towards this mid-court thing. Like, I feel like the audience is kind of growing more mature. And I think that casual games will, will grow more mature also. There's just so many ways of investing in gameplay and, and having people play games for years or months, years, hopefully, that gets more deeper if you have deeper gameplay. And, you know, there's one like really popular casual game that was like on the top of the market, uh, Candy Crush, that was like, oh, yeah. you're not going to make another Candy Crush to take people away from that. You know, people have their Candy Crush, they have their heyday, they have certain types of games. So it's a tricky, it's a tricky market, like to just stay super, super casual in, in that. So that's what I had learned from it. And that was my attempts to make a casual game that brought people to a more of a mid-core kind of thing to really expand the audience. Because I believe that once people play like the most basic stupid games, they're thirsty for more deeper yeah. experiences. That was kind of where I saw the market going. I kind of, kind of did go there. Like if you look at the mobile market, the free to play market now, the casual market has kind of matured. The experiences have kind of grown to be more like, if you look at like guarded scapes or something like that, they're deeper. People want to have this, they want to feel like their growth. They have growth in their own mm -hmm. abilities. They want to have more autonomy. They want to feel like they have more control over things. They don't want to be, be railroaded down one path. I think that does hook into the history of games, right? Like if you look at self-determination theory, which is another interesting thing to, to look at what motivates people, the power of intrinsic motivation what intrinsically motivates them. It's not gamification. It's not this like checklist of things. It's this growth of my abilities and showing off and like feeling like I'm a part of a culture and I have this hobby that I'm proud of and I feel like I'm getting better and I feel like I can mm -hmm. make choices. And I think all that wraps into all that. I think that's what it takes to really kind of understand that kind of market. That's awesome, man. It's a lot of gems of information out there for any aspiring or veteran designers. I tend to look back and think that other genres or other games figured out some of these things, things like WoW, things like Diablo. And you would have thought in the early heyday of casual games, that it's like, oh yeah, yeah, they're never going to go that way. And here they are, lo and behold, right? This is how they kind of build that depth to their experience, right? It's getting things that you aspire for or work towards, right? Whether it's cosmetic or power enhancements or makes other parts of the game easier, right? To, to kind of give, give you that sense of accomplishment, like you're growing and learning and progressing because they lowered the barrier of entry at that casual level. But now those gamers have matured and they keep coming and they kind of have that dexterity and expectations now where they expect more meat into their experience and developers are happy to give it to them, right? So there is this kind of weird merger that's happening from both ends of like casual to like hardcore meeting somewhere in the middle. And WoW is a great example, right? Like basically all these games became WoW. How did WoW become what it is? Well, WoW, I mean, it wasn't free to play, right? Other oh, no. MMOs were, but it was cheap enough. It had a huge audience. It became a hobby for people. How do you become a hobby for people? Like how do you replace TV? How do you have people playing every day? And how do you adapt that to mobile? And that like everybody just did a bunch of the same things, right? Like mm -hmm. mobile play is a little bit different in that people want to play in like one minute increments or they want to like every once in a while they'll sit in bed and they'll play for 20 minutes and they want to play like five times a day as opposed to once a day for like a two hour session. Like you have to think about all those things. But the, the general thing is like, I think when it comes all down to it, we are all going to be most motivated by something that is similar to what we're motivated by in real life. So what motivates us at work or motivates us in our lives, it's, it's similar to things that motivate us intrinsically in games. 
at PopCap, you got to work on some pretty awesome sequels and big franchises and run those forward. And I love how you called out that a designer having to make these broad jumps doesn't always work out, but took it like you did everything else. And you went in with an open mind, trying to learn it, trying to learn from your peers who are already kind of experienced in that space, playing everything in that space, immersing yourself in, taking the notes, reverse engineering it. Somehow, some way you still crave more. And I think Unity was taking off at the time. How were you able to make a shift in PopCap to explore that? A good question. Well, at the end of Peggle 2, I'd made some levels in Peggle. Stephen Notley made the most levels. You know, I was like the lead and he, he just did a lot of the heavy lifting and I did a lot of the lead stuff. I had made some levels. I'd helped him with some writing. And at the very end, I did some programming. We were running out of time and uh, there was some features that were going to get cut in Peggle 2. And I couldn't argue against it. We didn't have enough time. And they were going to cut like a couple of the design features in it, like armored pegs and something else I forget right now. And so for three, three weeks, I was just like, I'm not going to let these features get cut. And I just like downloaded the compiler and like downloaded all the code. And I was just like, I'm going to go in here and figure out why wow, there's all these bugs on them. And I fixed them. Um, and then they kicked me out from the code after that. <laughs> they locked uh, you out. <laughs> they locked me out. But I was like, man, I really like doing this. And at home, I'm not the type of person that is always working on games and stuff at home. I try to put that energy into my work. And if I'm not getting it there, then I start doing it at home. So I wasn't doing it much, but I had like been really curious about Unity. I had used Game Maker before and I had really touched Unreal a little bit, but like the idea that Unity was really suited to make small mobile games. And it was like, there was a lot of great tutorials and stuff out there. I started playing with it at home and I was like, oh, this is really cool. I did a game jam at work with someone. Everybody picked like six different engines and we all like made an old PopCap game. We made it San Aquarium as much as we could in like two days. And most of the people, especially myself was like, I want to do Unity. And most of the people after that experience argued for Unity because Unity got the furthest and people enjoyed it the most. And PopCap engine and stuff was really getting old at that point. So I was like, yeah, I think that's good for my career. It's good for my learning. If I get good enough in Unity, I can do whatever I want. And there was this thing called Pop Labs and you know, they're making the next games for PopCap, like original stuff. So I really wanted to be a part of that team and they wanted me and I got to choose the programmer I wanted to work with. And it was the programmer I worked with on that game jam. We kind of had a good rapport. Yeah. So, so it was just the two of us working and we experimented with different ways to work. Like we did, we started out with like a month long prototype. Then we did two weeks. We tried week long prototypes. We even tried like one day prototype. That one day prototype led to actually the game we started working on for the longest period in, in there. We were just trying our best to really not settle in too much on like just one idea, really trying to like put it out there, get feedback from the rest of the crew. And then it, unless it was like sparkling, we just stopped working on something. I still think we had some good ideas. We didn't really take to the fullest and we were trying to do it within the guidelines that we had set out. So it was like, it had to be a top 25 games. Unfortunately, I think the people at the time that were in leadership didn't believe in multiplayer quite as much as I did. I really wanted to work on something multiplayer. Especially synchronous. They did not believe that. And then when Clash Royale came out, I was like, look at Clash Royale. We Told could have you. done that with PVZ. What are you crazy? Why, why didn't we? So I really enjoyed that process. We had started to work on something. It was the last thing I worked at a pop camp. It's, it got really good. People excited and interested in it. And it would have been a really easy game to make freemium. But we spent the next like six, nine, maybe even longer months just turning it into a freemium product, making sure it was freemium, 
making sure that it had all the hooks for like a top, possibly top 50 mobile product, which is just a lot of work. And it's a lot of lessons and learning, you know, I started to learn like, well, why do all these games have fusion systems and why are they dropping so many things in mystery boxes and what are inside those and why people play in such a way that they can't make linear progress. They decide to have like five different areas, like arenas and, you mm-hmm. know, homelands and like all these different, like ways to play. Like that just seems confusing. And like, why are these systems so big and complicated? And I understood why kind of all those things were there through trying to make it, make one myself. So I think I, I gained a lot of respect for that market and it was a lot of fun, but we didn't end up shipping that game, unfortunately. It's funny you mentioned multiplayer because I loved PBZ one multiplayer. It was on XBLA at the time and, and I love playing the zombies and unleashing them on, on my roommate at the time. And I wish there was more of that. You're like one of the few people that played that multiplayer. I, I didn't even know. I did a pitch for PBZ three once. And I heard about the multiplayer. So I just saw videos of it. I didn't even know it existed until I did that. There's always going to be something for somebody else. And it's always a shame when the people, the gatekeepers don't see the value just because the current trends or analytics aren't there to justify the expense. I really love the fact that Pop Labs exists, right? How, how would you describe that for people that aren't familiar with like incubation teams and things like this? To be clear, I don't know if it exists anymore, but... <laughs> I haven't stepped foot into the office, right? Hopefully one day I will and I'll see. Well, so if you separate out that group from the main group, like they're not part of each of the other teams, then they have more chances of kind of doing something without the pressure of having bigger teams. One of the things I think is like when your group gets too big and you're trying to make something new, it becomes harder. Like your meetings become longer. Everybody has their own opinions about something. It becomes more discussion and less doing the thing. So I think that's one of the successes, I think, is like get the team as small as possible to make the thing you're trying to make, but not so small that you won't try things that are exciting. Like we were so small that it would have been hard for us to do synchronous multiplayer anyways. That's one of the things. And the other thing is like we did two or three week sprints, like we have preferred three, but like we always put out a build every single time and got feedback on it every single time. That is super critical to making games in general. Oh, yeah. But I think it's super, super critical in the earliest stages, right? And, you know, you hear Blizzard talk about this is like having people play your product is a good sense for if it's worthwhile. Like if people are like in the office, like we heard the last thing we were making, there was one guy who's like, he just keeps playing it. And we're like, cool. Okay. If you're making something and not everyone's not playing in the office or excited about it, then you probably don't have the right thing. Mm-hmm. And some of that's tricky, right? Like with free to play games, like, This is why I always ask free-to-play designers like what their initial stages look like. What did it look like in the first few months? Because a lot of times the gameplay like last weeks and it doesn't, it takes a while before you get to like what's fun about it. Making prototypes for a free-to-play product is different than like, hey, my jump feels good, right? The core loops are longer and bigger and they're different than they are making a product that's like a AAA product. Yeah. with AAA product, you like you can make a rock band demo or like Guitar Hero demo. You can make them in a day, you know. And be like, this is good. Like they felt that it was good. They yep. didn't have to wrap it with like, well, what do you do two weeks in when you know you finally got this thing unlocked and then it unlocks this other thing, right? Yeah. You can say the same thing about Valheim if we're going to talk about Valheim in this yep. podcast, right? Like you can't like make Valheim in a day, and it's not free, but it's like it's because there's these long engagement loops in it, and it's just like a hard thing to prototype that feel. Yeah, that's the thing that you definitely need to have a community in place, right? And then get these early access things running and listening to them and 
and letting them know that their feedback is being heard and implementing that and turning that around, right? To test out those long tail engagement loops, right? I don't, yeah, I don't know how else you would. Yeah. And the, in the app industry or the like tech industry, it's called the product market fit, right? Are you making something that people actually want? And if you are, then you can iterate live with them. Those people could be people at your studio or they could be people out in the wild, that real people. So first you're putting it to the test of internal, Hey, is it, does it pass the internal engagement test? If so, then throw it out into the wild. You can, but we were going to soft launch and then mm. they kind of pulled back from that idea because, you know, with EA as a company, it's, that's big hits, right? So it's like hard to like get all these gears in motion for something that is really small. It's yeah. almost not worth it to them, right? With the smaller teams, it's easier for you to be more nimble and just put it out in some crazy land really early. Like you just worked on it for a month, put it out over there. You don't have to get approvals. You don't have to like make sure that legal's all in or anything like that. Get it out there. And then you can just start seeing like, oh, no one wants this. Okay, whatever. Abandon it. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned soft launches. I think that's even kind of like a behind the scenes secret really too. For people that aren't familiar with soft launches, how would you break those down? A soft launch is it's like an early access, but it's like not public to everyone, mm -hmm. essentially. Everyone in the industry knows about it. Like everyone's paying attention to the next, you know, Supercell game oh, that's yeah. coming out because they'll launch it in like Thailand or I forget what the ones are now. Like it was always like Canada because it's kind of close to how Americans do things. Mm -hmm. You like want to do it. We're a place where you can buy a bunch of people. Yep. When I say buy people, you're not literally buying them. You're buying the ads that get sent to them that make them interested in getting the game. And then you get data on how they play the game. Yep. And it's closed for all intents and purposes, right? It's only going to that geography. Yeah. You usually pick like three and then you segment the players and you find out, okay, how is this game doing in these markets? Is it even worth putting out fully and putting all of our resources into? And when you soft launch it is, I guess, different depending upon the company and the game. Yeah. You know, my preference for everything is just do everything early, as early as you can, and then iterate live. And it's easier to do it in, in Android than it is in iOS because you can just put store updates out whenever you want, right? It always surprises me that the big players only want big hits or busts and that they don't invest more time in these incubation teams, right? Because you have so many resources and the tools that you could afford to designate some resources to having people spin off and do R&D and test out concepts and maybe a hit spins up. And it's also a great retention mechanism too, for people that want to learn different things and, and want to try different things, right? Like, okay, here, you don't want to work on these franchises of this type of product go here, stretch your creative muscles a bit, see if something hits. I'm always surprised that all the studios don't have something like a Pop Labs. Yeah, I am too. I have never been in an executive position high enough to understand it. I think Ubisoft does it pretty well, you know, from what I've seen. They have a fun house or yeah, something. Yeah, and they have like kind of pretty original stuff sometimes coming down the pipe. But I think there's something about being a big company and being beholden to quarterly earnings, I think is probably mm. the key to that. But I think people like me and you see it, right? We're like, you don't get PBZ to be such a huge franchise if those two people didn't get all that time or those three people didn't get all that time to just work on a bunch of ideas and just, they didn't think that game was going to be huge, right? Yeah. They were just like, sure. this is a good game, but they didn't know how big it would get. I don't know. I feel like there is a way to make original things in the house of a bigger product. If you read The Innovator's Dilemma, you realize the way to do that type of thing is to have it separate from the homeland, right? It has to be on its own P&L, profit and loss. Mm -hmm. It has to be its own entity. It could be part of a bigger corporation, but it has to be separate enough that they can keep taking bats at things. It's tricky. It seems obvious to us. 
Yep. It must be trickier than we think, but I, I would think that the next Valheim should be able to be made inside a big company, right? Mm-hmm. I want to do like a lightning round with... Yeah, let's do it. Yeah, sweet. Okay, awesome. What's the last game you finished? Kingdom Come Deliverance, I think is the last one I, I finished. How'd you like it? Uh, it's good. It's interesting to play someone that is not the hero in the typical fashion. That's what I would say about that game. You're like just some random guy that's like in the world and you're kind of near the people that are the biggest people in the world. So I, I played it for that reason. It also has some interesting systems in it. The systems influence the visuals and the audio. So like when you're getting tired, like it really affects kind of like what you see and it's got a good interplay between the systems and kind of the story too. So I think it's worth checking out. I got a free on the Epic store. So why not? So last book you read. I'm reading Shoe Dog now, which is about like Nike. The last one I remember reading was, was from the guy who ran Disney. Oh, is that Creativity Inc.? No, 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 not. That's the, the Pixar book. That one's oh. good too. This one is Bob Iger. Bob oh, Iger's book. Yeah, yeah, Really, yeah. really good. Really, really okay. good book. Awesome. And I'm not a huge Disney fan. Like I'm not like the super Disney nerd. It's really, really good. And it's really brings a lot of heart to something that you think is a big cold corporation. Fantastic. What's the thing you enjoy the most about the job? Two things. I always enjoy solving problems. I will mm. always enjoy that. I think that's like the key to life really is having problems to solve that you're interested in solving. As long as I have that, that's good. I think the other one is just working with people you like. It's too short a life to like work with people that you don't enjoy working with. Heck yeah. I figured out that there's like this triforce about what we do. And it's like, you know, it's three P's. There's like pay, project, and people. And yeah. usually as long as two of those are good, usually in for the ride. That's true. Most of my career, pay has not been, <laughs> has not been that good, but now it's pretty good. So uh, if I can get all three, I'm pretty happy. Yeah. Favorite part about working from home? I like being able to work while I have a, a, like a video up. It's something you can't really do at work. Oh, I'm with you. But I always have like something up because I can multitask for most of the things I'm doing, not all of it. So I like usually have like a GDC talk or something like, you know, like a Unity thing or like sometimes it's like a concert from a band or something. Yeah. I like having sound around me. I don't know. It's really fun. I can just get through so much of that type of thing. When I go back to work, okay, I'm going to kind of miss that. I'm with you 100%. I've definitely been at places where I've had studio head come and yell at me like, why do you have soft park up in the corner, right? We're doing serious, <laughs> serious work here. And I'm just like, all right, old guy, you just don't understand how <laughs> I approach my job. I remember we had one big ass studio meeting one time where like, I'm not going to say the name, but everybody got pulled in and studio head sat there like, all right, I ran the IT metrics. And do you know that like, it's some insane number of percentage of our internet traffic is being spent on Netflix. <laughs> I don't want to see this anymore, right? It was like a, a serious thing. And you can always make the argument, hey, designers or artists, we need to be looking at, at things, right? But uh, I get it, but it's silly, right? Like as long as people get in their work done, let them, right. you know, let them do the thing. But it's funny you call it out. It is funny. I think the bad apples ruin it for everybody else, mm -hmm. right? There are people that will take advantage of that. And in, it, instead of making rules to ruin it for everyone, I think you just got to get rid of bad apples sooner. I like that. Hey, that's, that's a, that's a gem. Yeah. Uh, yeah. If only the, the people that were, were responsible for getting rid of the bad apples would do it. <laughs> you never know. I, you know, my, my dreams or aspirations are that people that make influential decisions listen to this show, but you know, getting awareness out there, right? We're to the point where hopefully as people are working, they're listening to these episodes and getting those gems of insight. Yeah, that'd be good. What's the thing you miss the most about being in the office? 
we have really, really good food. I'm not going to lie. And it's free. It's free, really good food. And I gained a lot of weight. I gained 10 pounds uh, when I started Oculus. Working in the game industry, we're not like tech, right? We are privileged compared to most jobs, but we're not like tech. If you ever work at a tech company like a Google or Facebook or Oculus or whatever, that is just unbelievable. Like to get free food, three meals a day and snacks everywhere. It's just crazy. I'm super appreciative of that. And our chefs and people are so nice. It's such a good crew. That's the one life goal I have, right? Is I want to be able to afford some type of personal chef. (laughs) (laughs) See if it ever gets there. I had the benefit of being introduced to you by another gentleman who I invited to be on the show. I call him Hefe, but he goes by Jeff Junio or the Flipsider. We got to work together at Rockstar in San Diego. He nominated you. You came highly revered and recommended from him. And unfortunately, you agreed to fall out <laughs> of the play area. I'm curious what it was like for you working with him, how you guys know each other. Yeah, I met Jeff at 3DO. It was like we were kind of in the trenches together, right? Like we, we went through some good times. We went through some bad times. You know, we were together for some company layoffs like multiple times. You have some stories. <sighs> you know what it's like when you're in the trenches. Mm-hmm. You know, you become really close with people. There's nothing like that to that pretty group together. Like you can have a team that like, man, we made something really awesome. And, but you might not be as close to those, that group as is, man, this was really hard. And then it wasn't that awesome. <laughs> That's what my time with Jeff was like. We also both, I think, grew an appreciation of our love of wrestling growing up. Oh. I think that, that tied us together immediately. So every time I see Jeff, I give him the hardest chop I could possibly give. I just chop him right across the chest with my hand. I do a backhand sometimes. I do a forehand sometimes. And it scares the crap out of everybody around us. They give us the weirdest looks. Shout to Ric Flair, the nature boy, 14-time world champion. I think we would both say that nature boy, Ric Flair, and I think at the time, you know, we we were both a fan of (laughs) doing the Triple H water spit just because it's so over the top to see that in real life where you just drink down a half a bottle and just spit it right into the air above your head. So then I'm going to say it here, and then, you know, I may regret it, but I'm going to say it here. If we ever see each other, oh boy, I would welcome either of those. I would welcome either the Triple H water spit into the air as this like neon call sign to be like, oh shit, that's him. <laughs> or <laughs> the slap to the chest. Either, either one. Maybe I'll do both. Yeah. You'll just see the water and you'll, you'll be prepared. Hey, so a tradition we got here on the show is if you had a good time falling out of play area. If there's anybody you want to nominate to come behind you and fall out of play area next time. Yeah. I mean, there's so many, there's so many good people. I'd love you to talk to you. Thinking about it a little bit, I decided to nominate my friend and coworker, Dan Teasdale. I work with Dan at Harmonix. He's worked at a few places, notably Harmonix Pandemic, and now he's been working on indie games with his now wife for a while. So I think he'd give you a good perspective on AAA games and the old school kind of way it went. And then over on the harmonic side, what, what it was like making the first rock band and some of the challenges there. And then, you know, converting to be a full-time independent game developer, what that experience is like. I think he, he provide you a lot of insights. I'm happy to take that and run with it and get to know another designer that's been through the full spectrum. That, that'll be interesting. I appreciate that. Yeah, no problem. I, I'm looking forward to listening to it after you're done. Also, ping me when someday uh, you're ready for yours. Maybe I'll do you. Oh, snap. Turn the mirror around. That'll be, that'll be <laughs> exciting. Yeah. 
I've actually joked about that with a few people. Uh, we could probably do like a panel or yeah, <laughs> do, do like a roast. That'd be awesome. I've always round table. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we could uh, each do like a one part of your career. You can get like 10 people. <laughs> that could be cool. That could be cool, man. That's, uh, it's a great idea. Maybe whenever the world goes back to normal, it'd be awesome to do it live or something like that. Just meet up at a place. Yeah. And just put a mic in the center and just do it live. That'd be awesome. Yeah. Especially since we're in Seattle. Yes. Let's get yeah. all the Seattle folks out. Speaking of, you've been in this scene for a while. I've only been here, what, like three years or so. Do we have any Seattle game dev meetups or anything like that? Yeah, for sure. There's a big indie one. I think it's called Seattle Indies. I okay. think you can just find it by typing that. Um, if not, I could just add you to it. Awesome, man. I appreciate you. This is a blast. Uh, look forward to definitely doing more of these with you in the future, seeing any cool new things coming out of Oculus or just general, man, just talking about the industry. It's always fun. Thank you so much for coming on. Do you have any last words before you go? It was a blast. I think, you know, 20 something years gives you a lot of stories. And I just want people out there, if you're listening to this, you're really interested in games and making games and just keep with it. It's, it's just a great industry to be in. And games are as valuable as books and as valuable as music and as valuable as movies. It's a beautiful or can be a beautiful piece of art at times. And it can be something that enriches people's lives. So it's really worth getting into. Heck yeah, man. I can't emphasize that enough. And I usually always want it to come from other people's mouths. And I'm glad that you're putting that out there, right? Be resilient, persevere. And once you break in, you know, there's no telling of what you accomplish and the surprises you'll run into, right? And even the people you meet and on the other end, what can be impacted as a result. Yeah. If you're inspired by this, let John know. I'm sure like he would love to hear it. It's always good to hear feedback from people. Oh yeah, for sure. For sure. I like that you call that out uh, on the website. There's a link to the email and I even got a Google voice number. You can leave a message, right? All different types of ways to get us feedback and even ask questions that I can relate to the guests. All right. We're signing off. We're done. We're out of here. Take All care. Right. See ya. Bye-bye. Why don't more places have incubation chambers? Have you ever been part of one? Would you share why they work or they don't? So Ben's been resilient, and it seems like he's landed at his happy place over at Facebook on Oculus, enjoying catered meals all day long. I've got to take him up on that offer to go have lunch over there when the offices are open again. It's so reassuring to see someone who's been doing this since 99 and is thriving and staying at the bleeding edge doing what he loves, which is solving problems of which VR has no shortage of. How many of you have a wired headset or have thrown down on the Quest? It's funny, I actually had no clue about the disaster that was Lair and its development. I'm honestly shocked the more I come into contact with people that have worked on it and where the hell was I that I missed this? It looked like it was about 2007, so I was busy wrapping up my degree and trying to get work and finishing my own game at Midway on Black Sky Area 51. It was a busy couple years, so I could see how I got swallowed up. If any of you have any dev kit set up horror stories, I'd love to hear more about them. I'll echo his advice. Be resilient, be persistent, be stubborn in your pursuit, and don't give up if you find out that this is really something you want to do. All it takes is commitment. 
on episode 16, debuting Monday, August 31st of the Game Devs podcast, Out of Play Area, we'll sit down with Stefan Carmignani, a design director over at Robio in Montreal in Quebec, Canada. I got the chance to work with Stefan on a project codenamed Metallica for WB Games Montreal when I was designing AI systems in close tandem with his direction for level design and world building. He's a person who knows the level design craft well and has done level design on games such as Batman Arkham Origins, Deuce X Human Revolution at Eidos Montreal, Army of Two the 40th Day at EA, and Tom Clancy's Splinter Cell Conviction and Rainbow Six Vegas at Ubisoft. We talk about his journey in games, what it's like working in the interesting world of AR, VR for arcades, building and leading teams, and what exactly is this metaverse thing. Make sure to follow so you don't miss out on that one. Thank you for listening, devs. If you found this informative, I ask that you pay a link forward to a developer to help grow our listener community. Every follower helps. Out of Play Area releases new episodes every other Monday on all the major players and platforms, including Apple, Google, Spotify, and more. Please make sure to follow us to see what developer pushes Out of Play Area next time. I'm your host, John Diaz. Till next time, devs. Stay strong, stay true, stay dangerous. Mega Rain, bring them home, fam. Fight attendants, prepare for takeoff. Captain crew, please take your seats. We are now about to enter the out of play area. Yeah. If you can't reach me, I apologize. Since we out of play, I never compromise. John D, NYC, know we got the vibe. Make sure you hit that follow when you hit subscribe.